This story requires a response. The story we just heard requires a response. We can't just remain innocent bystanders listening, looking, and it not affect us. You and I are either saying yes to Jesus or we are saying no to Jesus. There's no middle ground. Our preaching series is entitled Living Yes Requires No. Living yes to Jesus and saying no to the behaviors and the attitudes that are contrary to following Christ. And I'm here to remind you that there is an enemy that is all over today's gospel that is trying to thwart, that's trying to destruct, that's trying to dissuade Jesus and all of his disciples from saying yes. He's actually trying to flip over the whole conversation we've been having to convince Jesus to say no to God and yes to himself. You heard Peter fighting with it himself. Aren't you one of his disciples? I don't even know the man. Peter was struggling. Three times he denied him. Peter would have a conversion later on in his life and he would begin to say yes to Jesus more and recognize the enemy's voice in his life and begin to say no more and more. So the conversation we want to have today is on pride. And today's going to be a difficult conversation because the, the thing about pride is pride's the one thing keeping you from actually hearing what I'm about to say. Pride's the one thing in your heart that everything I say, you're going to say that's about somebody else. I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. As I just communicate today, and maybe you get a little uncomfortable, I invite you to listen to what is making you uncomfortable. Because what I'm trying to do today is I'm trying to go at the enemy that is present in our lives and maybe more present in your life than you care to admit or know about. In pride, it, it, it has, a, has a big seal on it, and it's it's hard to crack the crust of pride. And so sometimes we have to do um, outlandish things. We have to talk in um, hyperboles. Jesus did it all the time to kind of break our rhythm, to catch us off guard. Just a reminder for those of you who may be jumping into the conversation uh, for the first time, we have gone through sloth and lust and envy and anger. This past week, um, Wednesday, we, um, we launched on Facebook um, Greed. We talked about greed. If you're interested, you can go back on our Facebook and kind of check it out. There's a link. Just had a conversation. We just don't have enough weeks to talk about all this. Today, we're going to talk about pride. And then uh, this Wednesday, we'll release uh, a video on gluttony. So we're going through all the deadly sins. Remember, um, the opposite of a, a, a sin, the opposite of uh, vice is a virtue. And we, we're going to 
propose humility as the virtue today. A virtue is a disposition. It's an it's a interior disposition using our intellect, our will, so that we can understand what is right, so that we can understand what is good, so we can have self-mastery, so that we can choose the good and not be a slave to sin. So let's talk about pride. What is pride? Pride is a disordered self-love or irrational desire for self-exaltation. It comes from the Greek verb uh, meaning to outshine or to overshine someone. A disordered self-love or an irrational self-exaltation. What pride does is it puts me at the center of everything. Life is about me. And the danger of pride is it takes Jesus out of his rightful place and it puts me in the place of Jesus. It takes him off of his throne and it puts me on the throne. So everything is about me. And the thing is, Christianity has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. We have been invited to follow Jesus. Christianity is a follower of Christ. We're drawn into his life. He is the source of our salvation, the source of our redemption, the source of our life. Without him, we're condemned to death. But pride begins to put me, begins to put you at the center of our life. And Jesus is just a means to help me in whatever I need, whatever I want. How do you know you might struggle with pride? I'm just going to go through these um, real quick and see if any of these maybe apply to you. You live a compartmentalized faith life. You attend Mass on Sunday with some regularity. However, once you check that box, you rarely engage with God outside of Mass on Sunday. Come to Mass, I get what I need, I filled in the box, I did what I was supposed to do, and I'm going to go to live the rest of my week however I want not checking in with God, really not living as if God were a part of my life. You haven't been to confession in a long time. In fact, you even are convinced that neither Jesus or the Bible teaches that you need to go to a Catholic priest for confession. We'll talk about that a little later. It's easier for you to find the faults in others rather than their goodness. You're more concerned with others' perception of you than the reality of your life. You often get defensive. However, you don't think so. So I'm inviting you to ask someone who knows you well if this is true about you. And don't get defensive if they say it is true. You presume with God. You presume you will be forgiven. So sin doesn't really affect you. You presume everybody gets to heaven. So morality and sin isn't really real to you. You don't want to admit it, but you really like to be the center of attention. You like the attention to be on you. You're more frustrated that you can't fix your sinful behavior more than the fact that it hurts the person, Jesus. When you go to confession, you're more frustrated that you can't fix whatever you're confessing more than it actually hurts the living God whom you are confessing to. Now what we're about to talk about if any of that kind of intrigued you, is the tactic of the enemy and what he is trying to do. 
He wants to flip this whole thing upside down. He wants you and I to say no to Jesus and yes to ourself. And he has a tactic and he has a plan. His plan is to take Jesus off of the throne, to take Jesus off of the cross, to rob him of his power, which he can't, but if he can, if he can convince you of it, then he's won the battle. So let's talk about three tactics that the enemy is trying to do to you and to me. One of them, the enemy of the best is the good. If Satan can replace the best thing that God has given us, Jesus, with something that is good, he's winning. How might Satan actually do that? Well, he's going to try to accelerate the pace of life through being overcommitted, being overly busy, especially with good things. Maybe that applies to some of you. He's going to reposition something that is beautiful, virtuous, namely providing for one's family and remove the end for which it exists so that it becomes both the means and the end. Now, work is no longer for the family, but it's suddenly competing with the family. If I'm a dad, if I'm a mom and I'm working and I'm, I'm, I initially I'm working to, salt, to, to provide for my family, to give to my family, but now if I work a little harder, I can give them more. If I, if I stay a little longer, I can give them more. They'll appreciate it down the road. They don't appreciate it now, but one day they'll thank me. But I'm never home. I'm never present. I'm never doing the one thing that only I can do. Now work is competing for the family. Now I'm going to present weekends as an out. I can't wait to the weekend so I can just breathe, so I can just rest. Eventually, I'm going to pit the sacred, being in this place, worshiping God with the secular. So that we can replace Sunday with good things, such as travel baseball, family time. Just go to the camp. Let's just, I encounter Jesus so much better in the cathedral of the bay, the Vermean Bay, or Henderson Lake. That's where I experience God. And all of a sudden, the things that are good are replacing the things that are sacred and holy. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's certainly a tactic of the enemy. It's a tactic that catches a lot of us who are here in church and catches a lot of people who are not in church doing good things. Tactic number two, to seduce America with a false Christianity. If I can rob Jesus of his power and get you to think that Jesus is somebody that he's not, then I've won, Satan says. How might I do that? How could I possibly do that? I want to accelerate and highlight the complexity of life. Life is difficult. It's hard. And therein, I want to create a need for God to be a respite from the complexity of life. God is somewhere where I go just to rest. The Adoration Chapel, it's, it's just, it's the quietest place that I can go to. And I, I want to go there just to be quiet, to get away from my family, to get away from the hustle and bustle. God, God just offers me a place that's calm so I can get back to the mess. 
Now I'm going to reduce Jesus to being just another good man with good life teachings. I read the 12-step 12, um, 12 program of read the seven habits of highly effective people. You know, Jesus has some good things to say too. So now he's a good man giving good teaching for good life lessons that we can read. But there's a lot of other people that give good life lessons. Now I'm going to present the Bible as complicated, even parts of it as relevant. Don't read all of it. You won't understand it. That's for the smart people to read. It's really complex. There are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. Now I'm going to reduce the Bible down to one verse. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just love people. Love them as you would want to be loved. That's what Jesus said anyway. Now I am at the center of what love means. And I'm determining how I love people. Now here it is. I've totally set you up for the poison. All religions are saying the same thing in different ways. Christianity says it in a way, but all religions are about the same God. It's just different expressions of the same God, which is an absolute lie. But if you can believe that, you are completely hooked. Now Jesus is not God. Now Jesus is not the Savior of the world and the Savior of you from your sin. Now Jesus is just another good teacher, just another good man. There's a lot of people in this world that believe that. Finally, what's the last tactic? Perhaps this is the most deadly. Satan wants to redefine love in your life and in my life. How might he redefine love? I want to take that which is authentically of Jesus, the reality that Jesus, the gospel, is about love. Jesus is the depiction of love hanging on the cross. Scripture says God is love. Jesus is the personification of love. So I want to take what is true and replace Jesus, his definition of love, with the American definition of love. What's the American definition of love? American definition of love is acceptance, tolerance. So now I'm going to replace Jesus as the center of love so that we ourselves and our feelings can be the center of love. Now you and I are defining what love is. It's tolerance. It's acceptance. It's no longer Jesus. And if I can do that, now I want to redefine love and have the human person their emotions, the center of love. Now I'm going to pit biblical teaching about gender, sexuality, divorce, contraception versus love. What the Bible teaches about all of those things, I'm going to juxtapose it to what I feel. Now I'm the center and defining what love is. And the Bible is irrelevant. In fact, it's outdated. It's such an out-of-date institution. It's such an out-of-date thing to read. And it's so judgmental, perhaps even hateful. The reality is in five or ten years, I or you are going to be arrested for simply talking about the dignity of human life 
and marriage between a man and a woman. That's going to be hate speech. But slowly the enemy is creeping into you and me and our lives. And he wants to put us on the throne and take Jesus off. And if he can, if he can get us to say things that Peter said, I no longer know the man, then his subtle tactic is working. This is where pride is at the center of our conversation. And if you feel uncomfortable right now, I really want you to listen why. This is the ultimate tactic for the enemy. He wants to lower the bar. He wants us to be okay with this. I'm a good person. All of you are good people. God is love. He'll forgive me. He'll forgive you. Doesn't everyone get to heaven? No. Not everyone gets to heaven. There are a lot of people in hell, and a lot of people are going to hell. Jesus didn't tell his disciples to be a good person. He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. He said, I have come to be the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no salvation outside of accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and confessing your sins. But if you and I can believe that we just have to be good people. Everyone's getting to heaven. Then who needs Jesus? Why are we here? Why did we hear that story? The story requires a response. And I'm asking you, how are you responding to that story? Have you listened to our preaching series I've heard so many people say, this is just a great preaching series. I've really enjoyed it. So, so where are we? Are we saying in our heart, what's the next preaching series? Like, what's next? We have talked for five weeks about sin. We have talked about behaviors in your life and my life that are destructive and separate us from the love of God. So how have you responded? I don't want you to show me your hands this is an internal question. After talking about sin, all of Lent, how many of you, don't raise your hand, have not gone to confession? I just want you to, to own it in your own heart. We've talked about sin. I know at some point we named something in your life that is separating you from God. We are all sinners. I'm a fellow sinner. I've gone to confession. I need to go to confession again before Easter. If you haven't gone to confession, why haven't you? I would suggest pride is getting in the way. A lot of people say, I, I don't need to go to confession. Where is that in the Bible? Jesus never talked about it. Did Jesus ever say anything about confession or the forgiveness of sins? This is from John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, he's talking to his disciples, the future leaders of the church, so I send you, he's talking to them. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit whose sins, let me start that over again, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. Jesus is giving his disciples the power to forgive sins. 
early church, early apostles, passed on that power by laying on of hands and breathing over the apostles and the apostles and the priests and the apostles. Where else is it in Scripture? This is James chapter 5. If you've never heard of James chapter 5, it's because your Bible doesn't have all of the books of the Bible. I would encourage you to get a Catholic Bible. At some point in the, the history of our church, um, there was a, a schism, there was an argument, there was a group of people who said those writings, those books are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And a few people took 13 books out of the Bible. Your Bible may not have the book of James, but it was in the Bible a long time, like 300 years after Jesus. Book of James. Is anyone among you sick? He should summon the presbyters. In Greek, it means priest of the church. So go get the priest, and they should pray over him and anoint him with oil, the sacrament of the sick, in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick persons, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have committed any... Let me say that again. If they have committed any sins, he will be forgiven. The priest has the power and the authority given by God through Jesus to forgive sins. The sacrament is actually given to us to help us get to heaven. But I go to God every night, Father. I tell him all of my sins. I just, I just really want you to, to be honest with yourself. Is it the humility of going before another human being and confessing your faults, is that what's keeping you from the sacrament? If so, I would really invite you to pray with pride. As we close this preaching series, the one thing I'm asking you to do is if you haven't gone to confession already, please go to confession. We have talked about sin like there's, there's no, there's not another preaching series that's going to attempt to stir your heart, to humble yourself before God. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, whom, whom created the heavens and the earth, who we just heard a story that he came down from heaven to be ridiculed, to be spit at, to be scourged, to be mocked, who said at one time, do you not think that I can ask my father and he would give me 12 legions of angels to come and destroy all of you? But he allowed himself to be killed so that you could get to heaven and be with him forever in heaven. You are not God. I am not God. We are creatures of God. Creatures. Our only rightful disposition before God is humility and gratitude, asking him for mercy. And the devil wants you to believe that you are equal to him. In fact, he's, he's just one of us. He's just a good man. My encouragement, be not afraid to go to confession. Uh, this week, we have extra times for confession this Wednesday from 6 on. We'll be here, me and Father Dugat will be here from 6 to 8. Um, Thursday, we have service at 7 p.m., and then we'll be hearing confessions after that. We hear confessions before weekday mass, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, at, starting at 8 a.m. Um, humility. That's the virtue to counteract pride. 
to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am sorry. You are God, I'm not. Left to myself, I am capable of any sin. Without the grace of God, you and I would be condemned to hell, and Satan would constantly have a field day with us. No one is safe from sin without the grace of God, not even Peter. Let's pray that we can stand before God and actually say yes to him and no to sin rather than be convinced to begin to say no to God and yes to ourselves. As we begin this Holy Week, we focus on Jesus. Let us humble ourselves. Say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, I am sorry. Lord, forgive me.